Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. I just had the pleasure of speaking with Eric Shannon, who's an American-based publisher and translator out of Chiba, Japan. He's been working in Japan for about 20 years, and we spoke in detail about his approach to language learning, his approach to translation, and his work is currently focused on 18th century manga, lost martial arts manuals, Japanese esoterica, tattooing subcultures. I hope you find this rewarding and insightful, and thanks for listening. Eric, I wanted to thank you first um, for responding so quickly on Twitter. I got kind of mesmerized by your books. I was at the Okinawa um, Festival here in Honolulu, mm-hmm. and I came across a group of, I think, two or three tattoo artists, females, who themselves were Okinawan descent, and they had copies of your book. And I'm at the maybe N3 level Japanese and mm-hmm. I've just never heard of this topic. I mean, I've I have some tattoos personally. I have stick and poke tattoos, and I'm you know somewhat familiar with tattoo culture in Japan. But I just this was just like kind of mind blowing and something that was just never exposed to me. Both you know Okinawa is kind of a isolated place in Japan. I've never been, and you know I just wanted to thank you for exposing um, these women. Were really excited about your work. Uh, they gave me you know I looked at your both editions of your book. And they were, you know, kind of restarting and trying to renew this kind of lost art. And then I, you know, I, I spent some time looking on the internet and I was like, who is this guy? Where did you find this topic? <laughs> you know, what interested you? Uh, I, you know, I assumed you were like an anthropologist or some type of researcher. Or, and then I found that you're a translator. And I was like, well, I got to interview, you know, you had a lot of other topics, you know, interest in martial arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, translation, Japanese language study, um, some of the occult, you know, I looked at your Twitter feed and you have a lot of great, you know, topics on there as well. So um, I don't even know where you are in Japan, Eric. Why don't we just start there and then maybe we can just learn about what brought you to Japan and how you've been approaching, I guess, everything you're working on. Well, that's a really nice uh, anecdote you just told me about those ladies in uh, Hawaii with, that have copies of my books. I'm I'm really quite flattered by that, especially considering they are, you know, from Okinawa and are also interested in tattooing. So I that was a really that's really quite flattering to know that uh, my uh, the work I translated as uh, is helping people out. And uh, basically, I got into uh, I mean I'm in Japan. I've been living in Japan for 20 years. And I live in a place called Chiba Prefecture, which is just uh, east of Tokyo, and uh, um, kind of out on the uh, on the east coast of Japan. And uh, I've been here for about twenty years, and I didn't know any Japanese when I came to Japan, other than the uh, standard Japanese that every American knows, like you know, samurai ninja, you know, kamikaze, harakiri, and stuff like that. So I, uh, as soon as I got to Japan, I really got into uh, learning Japanese and um, basically through self-study, uh, gradually uh, developed, uh, you know, uh, got through hiragana, katakana, into kanji, into regular Japanese, uh, newspaper level Japanese. And then I started poking around at the uh, pre-war Japanese uh, stuff, which is, you know, if you're familiar with it, you know, it's, it's it becomes one level more difficult. And so after working on that for a little bit, I started being able to uh, edge back even further in time into the, the Meiji era 
and then the uh, even the Edo era to a degree. So right now my focus is uh, just translating stuff that I enjoy. I don't have any, I have almost no contracts with with anybody. I do occasionally take uh, freelance work, but most of it is just stuff that um, I've discovered and uh, and uh, I'm interested in. I'm like, I'm going to translate this book and I translate it and publish it. And um, I independently publish all my stuff through Amazon. And uh, I'm just keep chugging away at uh, stuff I find interesting. And then where are you from, Eric, originally? I'm from the United States, East Coast. Uh, I was in uh, lived in Virginia. I lived in Texas and then later on Virginia. And then what brought you to Japan originally? Just uh, I was looking for a, a change of uh, looking to mix up what I was doing. So I applied to uh, an English conversation school through a newspaper ad in The Onion when I was visiting Chicago one time. And I responded to an ad and got recruited. And, uh, you know, the at the time, there was the if you got accepted for the interview, they set you up with the uh, um, everything you needed to get started in Japan. They you got a job, a work visa, and uh, they sublet they sub rented an apartment for you. So when you have like that, you know, three point set all ready to go, it's uh, easy to kind of start your life in Japan. And then did you study anything related to like language learning or language translation or anything like that formally? No, no, nothing like that at all. I mean, I studied German when I was in college and uh, I was always interested in Japanese anime and uh, Japanese uh, manga. Like uh, um, originally, like there were very few movies available in English, stuff like Akira and Fist of the North Star and Robotech and our Macross and uh, Machine, uh, what's it called? Transor Z and stuff like that. These old animes, I really like those. And then finally, eventually Dark Horse Comics started publishing Lone Wolf and Cub in English. And I was really, really fascinated with those. Um, but when I came to Japan, I didn't have any, uh, it was not my intent to uh, become a translator or anything like that, but I enjoyed translating Japanese and through and I also started doing martial arts for the first time while I was in Japan. And while I was doing martial arts, um, the, or the organization I was in was called the Jinankan. And uh, it has several branches on in other countries. And those members from other countries would come to Japan to train directly with the, the sensei. And uh, after a while, it got to the point where I was able to translate questions and answers that these... Uh, um, people that were much more skilled than I was had. So I was translating back and forth these uh, questions and stuff like that. And eventually um, they started asking me if I could translate some items from Japanese into English related to martial arts and related to like ninjutsu and stuff like that. So I was like, yeah, I'll give it a try. And so slowly I kind of got into translating just first of all, just by like helping people out with questions and answers and short uh, articles and stuff from the uh, from a hundred years ago and stuff about martial arts or ninjutsu or something like that. And then, what was your language? I mean, why don't we just before we go to your language development? I'm just curious, what brought you to Okinawa tattoo culture and where you even discovered that? And we can go back to the original place. Um, let's see here. So I was. You kind of have to back up a little bit before that because I was very fortunate that uh, around the time I started being able to um, 
read and write Japanese as well as speak it, um, I, I realized that the National Diet Library in in Tokyo had digitized a bunch of their collection and made it searchable. So you could type in stuff like jujitsu and all the books with jujitsu in the title and to a degree in the contents would appear. And because that stuff is out of, uh, is in the public domain, you, it was free for use. So originally my, my first book on tattooing was called Tattoos as Punishment, which uh, looked at the punishment tattoos in the Edo era. And so while I was tattooing the, or sorry, while I was uh, researching the uh, uh, punishment tattoos in the Edo era, I also at the same time came across Ainu tattooing and tattooing in uh, Ryukyu or the Okinawan Islands. So for my original book, I just had a little bit of an intro on the, or a short section on Ainu tattooing and a short section on Okinawan tattooing. But and then after I finished that book, I really wanted to expand on both the Ainu and the Okinawan tattooing. So these books I just released about tattooing in Okinawa, the two volumes are basically expanding on that first section I translated, um, I guess it was like five or six years ago. And then what was the, just to summarize, what's the the tattoo culture during the Edo period? What is the punishment regarding? So during like daimyo or what kind of, what was the tattoos about? Is that for criminals, like markings? What were the, what did they Correct. serve? During the Edo period, which was uh, basically started in 1600, um, there were uh, criminal criminals that were convicted of uh, stealing or actually one common crime was dining and dashing, which sounds kind of really modern, but they would like go to a hotel or a uh, or a brothel, order a bunch of food and drinks and some entertainment and then try to like run out on the bill. And so such people would when they were caught in addition, in addition to being thrown in jail for, you know, a month and then giving a, a severe beating with a bamboo cane. They would also be tattooed on one or both arms with like a black band, like about uh, two inches thick going all the way around the arm. And uh, that would be an indelible mark that you couldn't, you know, conceal really. So everyone would know that this person's criminal and, and could not be trusted. And uh, in the Edo period, each region of Japan, each domain of Japan had its own tattoo uh, design so some places had like a a bar kind of like a band going all the way around the arm some places had like a, a one katakana letter like for example sado island that's kind of off the in the sea of japan would just have a katakana sa tattooed on the arm and uh, other places um had uh like well just various designs and then there were some that even tattooed directly on the forehead the famous one being uh the tattoo of a dog or the tattoo of the kanji dog, which was actually done in stage one well, in four stages. Uh, you know, they, every, they time, every time got it. Every time you did a crime, they would add a character uh, stroke. Correct. So, and they also had like you know the symbol of the Buddha tattooed on the forehead, or even the kanji bad, like you know watery. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so I thought that was really interesting. So the tattoos as punishment book that I did, it basically focused on those tattoos. And how um, they were, uh, what the tattoos were in each area, and what they meant, and why, and then as well as some case studies of what kind of people, why was a person given a tattoo? And like I said, if they stole, you know, a bundle of some swords and kimonos, they would get a tattoo or something like that. If they stole more than like you know ten pieces of gold worth, 
then they would usually just get their head cut off. So they wouldn't get tattooed. And then what, how did you even find this one topic of interest? Do you have tattoos or interested in tattoo culture or what was the well, attraction? I, I had heard that like, you know, everyone knows the Yakuza, you know, they're tattooed and they cut their fingers off and stuff like that. And I had heard that the punishment tattoos that the, was it? Uh, so the criminals in the Edo era got tattooed on their arm. And I had heard that the Yakuza just sort of expanded on that kind of like, you know, yeah, I'm tattooed. And they just sort of took the punishment tattoos and just expanded them into dragons and stuff like that. So kind of like owning the fact that they were tattooed, in other words, is what I had, I had heard for a long time. But when I looked into it, it sort of actually had uh, no real connection, as it turns out. Um, tattoos became very f fashionable beginning very early in the Edo period, around the 1650s. Uh, young lovers would tattoo each other as like a, a sign of, as a sign of love. You know, like I have a, we both have a tattoo that like, you know, uh, of the initials of the other person. Um, and then, um, those tattoos be began growing more complex th through time. And what was the tattoo artist culture? I mean, that they just specialized or the people doing the punishment tattoos, were they just like the police informers, the samurai class? Like no, who? No, they were the, uh, they were the, uh, the Hinin. In, in the prison, they were the Hinian. They were a non-human caste because they had been like, you know, completely, they were outcasts from society in prison. So a samurai wouldn't be, a samurai directed it, but he didn't actually do the tattooing. Got it. They, it was is just that, a bundle. Is that below the Burakumin type caste or even? It, it, it's kind of a, that's a good question because it's kind of difficult to say. Um, how exactly they're arranged, but there was like the Burakumin and then there's the Hinin and then there's the Eta. So they're all kind of like un unclean outcast kind of people. Um, but yeah, the, uh, based on their occupation, basically. Right. And but, for example, criminal. the Hinin in prison, they had been like, they had been convicted of a crime. So they were, their status had been removed completely. Got so it. That's, that's them. And then the Eta were like, uh, people that did unclean jobs, like you said. And, but it also included people that were just sort of like, you know, in criminally insane or uh, drunkards or something like that. I mean, jumping to the modern day, when did the Yakuza start? Did they then branch off of the kind of Romeo and Juliet tattoo culture or where did they pick that up? There was some, there was some um, element of, uh, um, tattooing as a main a means to intimidate people. So, like I said early on, it, there were tattoos between lovers and especially courtesans in the uh, in the red light district and their and their best customers. They would tattoo themselves to show their devotion. They also did stuff like cut their pinky fingers off the courtesans. So that was another way to show their devotion. Uh, later, and then those tattoos at that time were all self applied, just with like a straight razor and a little and a little bit of a. Um, you know, calligraphy ink rubbed in. So the uh, professional tattooists did not emerge for some time. So originally it was just all done by hand or or done by themselves, self-applied or by like another person doing it to you who was not a tattoo artist, just uh, just someone who's giving it a go. So that, that sort of progressed for a while. And then in the late 1600s, you started getting people tattooing 
designs meant to intimidate, like a skull or a severed head, uh, you know, namakubi, like a, a, a head that's been cut off. And these would these would be used to like, you know, you just show someone this tattoo and they would get scared and give you all their money kind of thing. Wild. And then contemporary, where do you think the contemporary feeling of um, tattoos? I mean, I have some tattoos. They're so small. And I mean, ryokans always make it. You can't go and you have to go to the mm. Sento. I mean, in Sento culture, they they don't really care at all. So I'm just, but that's a subclass. I'm just curious, what are the current associations and when did that come? Post-war or where did those current feelings of tattoo, are they still linked to this tattoo as punishment or fear of the tattoo? Well, there was... There was also eventually, like I said, they had they, these were running concurrently. So you had people that were like, you know, showing tattooing themselves as a sign of devotion at the same time that they were tattooing people as punishment. So those you have to remember those were both happening at the same time. So it can be, you know, it, it's it's a little bit muddled what exactly was going on. And then when you get to the 1700s, tattooing had gradually been increasing. And so by the uh, I guess it was like towards the mid 1700s. A lot of the outside people that worked outside naked, so to speak, you know, wearing fundoshi like the steeplejacks and the palaquin bears, they all started getting these full body tattoo suits. And uh, it was to the point where, like, you couldn't find a palaquin driver without a, you know, a full body suit of tattoos. And even like the steeplejacks, the guys that did the roof raising in, in buildings, if you wanted to join that guild, you basically had to have a tattoo. Otherwise, you weren't going to uh, you weren't going to get in. So there was a it was a really really big culture, and the uh, Edo Bakufu tried several times to, you know, outlaw tattooing, and they passed laws. You're not allowed to get a tattoo. You're not allowed to tattoo people, all that kind of stuff. But they just got ignored. So uh, it just kept building and building and building, and uh, so it was it was always it was always illegal to tattoo, and even in the Meiji era. Um, they, it was still illegal to tattoo people or have a tattoo. And at one point, they even had to uh, issue special permits for people that uh, said, oh, I got a tattoo, you know, because tattooing was illegal, but you have a tattoo. How you prove you got the tattoo before the law and not after the law? So they started issuing these permits saying, I had a, I'm permitted to have a tattoo because I got it before the law was enacted. So the government was trying all kinds of things to get rid of this. Um, this culture, uh, culture, but uh, it just wasn't really happening. Sorry, what was that question again? Uh, no, I'm just curious. Like the contemporary, like Ofuro bath. Oh, uh, in the bath, yeah, yeah. I'm just so, curious, what's the linkage there? Obviously, to the criminal, they associate it with criminal elements still, or fear. It's all the same reasons. I well, guess. I mean, one one of the uh, in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, you know, there were a lot of yakuza movies out that showed like you know the, the yakuza is these bad guys with tattoos and so that that really you know embedded the image of the tattoo as you know something associated with uh with a, not a nice person so um that um so then jumping the jumping back to okinawa then to the ryuku islands i mean they well why don't you walk me through where where you found them and what how they differ are similar to the other mainland Honshu Japan culture. The an early um, in the, uh, the in the one of the papers in the first tattooing in Okinawa book, which was published in 1893, 
um, this guy named Miyajima just decided to go to both the Ryukyu Islands and up to Hokkaido and and look at the tattooing that was done. And he was trying to see, he was like, is there any connection? Why is on because in both places they have tattooing. In both places, it's primarily the women that get tattooed. And so his question was, is there any connection at all? Which is, you know, a great question for 1893. And he found that there was the designs were completely different. The reasons were completely different, and uh, there didn't really seem to be any connection. And if there was, it was lost, you know, centuries ago. And was he an anthropologist, or he's just like an interested person? I, I couldn't really find out much information. I think he was a a a, a lecturer, maybe a university lecturer. And so, how does the two cultures differentiate themselves? The Ryukyu and the Ainu tattooing. Well, the Aina tattooing is kind of a big question mark because they don't really they didn't have any written records. So the only um, information we have comes from what was collected by explorers or researchers, um, you know, in the Edo era and in the uh, in, especially in the Meiji era. So there's not it's not really clear where those tattoos originated. As far as the uh, Ryukyu, um, the Ryukyu Islands first came in contact with the um, were first started getting mentions in um, a Chinese explorer's books. And in the 1300s, the Ryukyu Islands sort of made a contract with the Chinese, with the Chinese uh, mainland to become a tributary. So they started, basically it was a trade agreement between the two countries. And as that uh, trade agreement progressed, people from China would travel to the islands of Okinawa and, uh, you know, for trade, and they would report on what they saw. So starting in, I think it's like uh, maybe 14, 1390s or something like that, these uh, trade missions, the guy that was sent out would record what he saw in Okinawa, and he recorded women that having tattoos on their hands. And uh, so that was the first mention of tattooing in the Okinawan islands. And uh, interestingly, like the very, there's several of these books well, there's many of these books um, detailing what happened on these trade missions, and they have little snippets here and there of what happened or, or regarding tattooing. And so the first guy mentions that the tattoos were of like insects and tigers. And then the next guy who's like 80 or 100 years later is like, uh, the previous guy mentioned the tattoos look like insects and tigers, but they actually don't look like that at all. They look like fl uh, water flowers or... Uh, uh, other kinds of plants and then the uh, the guy after him you know in the 1500s says yes there was uh no there were no tattoos of insects yes all the women have tattoos and uh they walk around barefoot and uh they all have that yeah and uh it's an unusual sight so the, the the first descriptions of tattooing in the okinawan islands are from these chinese kind of travelogue reports uh, of the ambassadors from China visiting the Ryukyu Islands. The first uh, Japanese description of tattooing in the Ryukyu Islands comes in like the 16, early 1600s. A, uh, a monk, a priest, a monk of the uh, Tendai sect of Buddhism traveled to the uh, Ryukyu Islands as kind of like as a missionary. And he recorded that the women all had tattoos. And uh, he speculated, he was wondering, is this the same 
was this the same uh what do you call it uh as he noted that they don't blacken their teeth like they did in japan you know you know what i mean back in the heian era the, the the courtly women would dye their teeth black i didn't know about that i think i've heard of that originally and what was the reason yeah. for that they thought it was beautiful or yeah, yeah, I thought it was beautiful. So, like the women in the in the what do you call it? Like the imperial court would blacken their teeth, as and that was just they, it was called a ohaguro, and uh, they would blacken their teeth with some kind of like uh, some kind of paint or something. And uh, this this priest who goes to the Ryukyu Islands, he's like, well, they don't blacken their teeth, but they do tattoo their hands. So I don't know if there's some connection with the use of black. And that's really all he says in this stuff in the 1600s. And then what was the, I think one of the tattoo artists was saying that they used it as markers for where their island, uh, which island in the Ryukyu kingdom they were from, and then markers of life events, puberty or pregnancy or marriage, right? Right. The, uh, this is another um, aspect. It's not, it's not clear. There's hints of it and, uh, and uh, it's all the, all the sources I've translated so far give slightly different uh reasons or slightly different slightly different information regarding the tattoos so the tattoos were certainly different on each isle on different islands but there were some um what do you call it some similarities for example um for the most part it was limited up the tattoos only went up to like the wrist bone and uh they were all done on girls they were all done uh starting fairly young and they ex generally extended up until uh the woman was married though there were some tattoos also given when a woman reached 60 years of age which is uh 60 years is a significant it's called kanreki it's uh you've gone through the uh you've gone through the uh what do you call it the zodiac signs You've gone through all the zodiac signs like five times until you uh come back to your original birth sign so you would get tattooed again then wild so there's like a chinese influence there with the lunar calendar as well and all kinds of markers is there is it true one of the tattoo artists was saying that they use it as an anti kind of piracy slash kidnapping because women would be supposedly they were beautiful from the Ryukyu Islands and the Honshu mm -hmm. or the Chinese would kidnap uh, Okinawan women and the tattoos served as some type of like home beacon. Mm. Well, there was definitely, uh, you could definitely, you mentioned before, I, I didn't address that, but you know, you could tell where a woman was from based on the, uh, on, on her tattoos. So was that a uh, kind of a mark of pride or was it a, uh, a way to, keep track of the uh the people on an island so there was a there's a little bit of a question mark about that um also there were some differences in class with the tattoos for example on the main island of okinawa um the the tattoos were fairly standard throughout the island um there was um, sort of the bamboo leaf design across the back of all four fingers all five fingers and then a small ovals on the uh, on the knuckles However, if you were kind of a woman from the upper class, the lines would be very thin. 
And as the as your class was I don't know, lower, so basically a farmer, you know, an upper class woman would have a very thin kind of pencil thin line. Whereas if you were like a uh, a farming girl, you would have a really thick line that was almost like, you know, you took a big black magic marker and covered the entire back of the uh, finger. So it was all black. Um, what were some of the challenges finding? I mean, the Okinawan language is different. So what, what was your like research process like? And did you? Well, they. Some of the sources, uh, you know, they write the the uh, the Ryukyu language in like katakana, right? So it's like a song about tattooing, and it's all written in Ryukyu. So you know, I, I can't really make heads or tails of that. And uh, but they give a Japanese uh, translation of what the Ryukyu language says. So I tr- I can translate that into you know English, but uh, it's it's getting a little bit far from the source material at that point. Um, Unfortunately, like kind of the way they spell words, it doesn't really match the words that are in common Okinawan dictionaries. So, you know, I tried to search some of these words and just nothing comes up. So it's just the way that Japanese person transcribed the Okinawan language into katakana or the it's the dialect, but it was hard to really uh, confirm any of the, uh, you know, what some of these people wrote. So I just left it as is. This is what this guy wrote. This is what he said it is. Um, there's nothing really. Did you have any contact with, you know, researchers in Okinawa or any linguistics or just are, are other researchers interested in this topic? Or are you kind of, I mean, it seems like you're the only one in English really doing this kind of work. I think there's, um, there's not a lot in English. There's definitely people doing uh, research into, um, Old traditional styles of uh, of uh, Japanese or, or Okinawan tat- uh, tattooing, and there are like some. I, basically, I'm I'm friends with people on Instagram that are you know doing these type of tattooing on you know currently you know Okinawan style you know tattooing up the back of the fingers, tattooing on the uh, the 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 uh, wrist bone, and, and stuff like that in traditional Okinawan style. So I'm friends with them. But uh, a lot of times, even if they're Japanese, they're working from basically the same sources I'm working from. Just they're using the Japanese version. Got it. No, it's just just a very interesting, like, strange game of telephone because a lot of the people, I mean, you're a foreigner, kind of reintroducing, re... I mean, some of the women found your work and they, they almost were kind of... They were tattooed in Western style. And then... But their Japanese descent, and it almost became kind of like a cultural homecoming for them to discover that Okinawa had some of this tattoo culture. Well, so that was I'm really quite, interesting for me. I'm quite flattered to, to hear that. I appreciate letting me know about that. But this, this is exactly what uh, uh, I try to do: is just you know make available. You know, there's wonderful sources in Japanese about all kinds of topics. So I'm trying to just. Uh, you know, translate the stuff that's put out stuff that's uh, can be interesting and useful for people. And uh, hmm. <laughs> did you travel to the uh, Okinawan Islands at all for anything, or to find texts, you know, in their research libraries or anything like that? Or um, for now, I've got uh, I've actually just basically exhausted all the research papers uh, that were online. Like in the first book, I had some from 1893, 1900, 
in like the 1920s and 30s. Um, I feel like there's more out there. But one one issue is, is I don't know um, what they're called. You know, you know, like I don't, they sometimes don't necessarily say tattooing. It's just like, you know, the, uh, the culture of, the culture of Miyako Island or something like that. So it's a big book that'll have all about Miyako Island and maybe a little bit about tattooing, but you kind of have to go through the whole book to find the section you need. So I'm definitely, I definitely think there's more resources out there and I'd like to go to um, the Okinawan islands and, and uh, do some more research. I have not been there yet, though I have been to several islands in the, uh, that are associated with Tokyo. They're straight down out of Tokyo, uh, like Oshima, Big Island, and Nijima, New Island. But I haven't been to Okinawa yet. Wild. And then what other topics are you, I mean, maybe we can jump from tattooing on to, I mean, some of the martial arts, or what are you finding the most interesting right now in translation, or how are you approaching? You said there's so much interesting topics. I'm just curious what your focus is in right now. Yeah, well, I'm, my focus is I'm trying to focus. So uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, jujitsu stuff, and especially how jujitsu was presented in the early Meiji era. Because up until the in the Edo era, martial artists were like basically sponsored by the government to uh, to train. Because originally, each domain had its own army. Each domain in Japan had its own army, and then its own army instructor, military martial arts instructor. And so after the uh, major restoration, those people all lost their jobs. And so some of them tried to open up private dojos um, and start publishing material about how to train in martial arts. So I started translating those early jujitsu and uh, kenjutsu or sword fighting manuals that were published in like the 1880s and 1890s up until like the 1920s. And uh, at the same time, there was also a big boom in uh, judo and jujitsu in America and Europe. And this is because Japan defeated the Russian fleet, sunk the the Russian fleet in- uh, The Sino-Japanese war, yeah. Right, so that was a big shock to the Western world because that was the first time an, an Asian country had defeated the Western power. Up until then, you know, you had like the, uh, you know, unilateral trade unilateral trade agreements or like what do you call it Un- unbalanced trade agreements uh with china and stuff where the western the western powers had basically extraterritoriality where they had they had the ability to they, they they were not subject to local laws in any way shape or form and so basically they just r- ran roughshod over the country that they were uh ostensibly trading partners with but after this it was kind of a wake-up call so the Western, a lot of Western people were like, excuse me, um, they were like, how is it that Japan was able to destroy, um, you know, a Western fleet? And a, they looked at Japanese culture and they saw that everyone did judo and jujitsu. So they're like, oh, well, that must be the reason. So let's look into this. So there was a big boom in judo and jujitsu in the United States. And right recently I published a, uh, um, a guy named Maeda Mitsuo, a, uh, a judo practitioner who was uh, a direct student of Kano Jigoro, um, traveled to Europe to try to help expand judo in Europe and also in America. And it's he wrote a, uh, a biography, not bi- an autobiography, of uh, 
his travels and all the duels he fought in like the 1900s through like I'm up to 1908 now. Is he the one who went to Brazil to then? Yes, that's him. That's him. So this is I'm working through his. It's kind of a. It's he wrote an autobiography, but his editor or whoever wrote um, sort of transmit sort of made it a novelize it, I guess, because um, he, um, he he kind of discusses it's it's told from the third person like Maida did this and Maida did that so it's not so it's it's a bio he he kept a journal of all his bouts sent it back and then the guy kind of made a a biography of his travel it's funny both of these topics the jiu-jitsu and tattooing uh, I'm just curious how you can tie in the Meiji era and the modernization and how they kind of I mean the Okinawan culture got subdued right during that period and then the jiu-jitsu culture got subdued as well. Well, jiu-jitsu still had a life as um, army and police training. So, and a lot of schools were vying to get those contracts, you know, get a contract with the police or the military to um, to teach. Because that was basically, you know, a, a way to um, regain their, um, what do you call it? you know find find a means to continue their um their training life teaching and training and continue their school so the schools would all um um we're, we're looking to do that so there was fierce competition amongst uh, the schools to um to uh to get those contracts and you also had judo at the same time made by Kano Jigoro and he eventually was able to uh, um, get judo installed as the official martial arts, not only in school, but also in the police force. But wasn't the judo kind of the American occupation force kind of banning the jiu-jitsu? Or is that a misunderstanding? Um, judo was... Um, I believe judo was allowed to continue uninterrupted. I'm not entirely sure about that, but um, uh, kenjutsu, the sword fighting was kendo was the one. Oh, that kendo was, was it softened, right? Right. So that one, they uh, they were like, look, it's connected directly to military militarism, and you know the uh, the previous government, so we're going to ban that. But uh, with a lot of uh, with a lot of hard work, and uh, you know working hard to convince the uh the american general headquarters they uh, they finally got a uh they finally they finally uh were able to prove that kendo is kind of a uh it's not a killing art it's a uh it's a way to develop the like athletic spirit not not just uh teaching how to kill kind of thing uh so they, they it briefly was called uh was it shinai kyogi like uh, Shinai are the uh, bamboo swords wrapped in leather um, that they um, used to use in uh, um, training martial arts so that you were allowed to use. Uh, it was briefly called that before it actually became Kendo again. And then, um, Eric, I'm curious, just, you know, stepping up a little bit, what's mm. your approach to translation then? How are you dealing with these texts? What's your process? You know, maybe you can talk about your language learning development, and that's well, just like, interesting. Well, as far as learning, I uh, 
I, I, I didn't go. I, I taught myself. I taught myself Japanese by living in Japan. And as far as reading, I started off with a uh, a book called A Graded Japanese Reader. That was a really, really old fashioned book, but it really helped me out a lot. And from that, I graduated to the uh, the Asahi Kids Newspaper, which was a uh, it's called Kodomo Shimbun, and it it's got short articles, but it's real news that's timely, and it um it uh. It, it, uh, I subscribed to it, so it came to my house every day, and I would read these short articles that had all hiragana on it for about six months, and then I switched to the regular Asahi newspaper and uh, was able to begin to read for real. So that was how I learned to read and basically write, because I would just copy down the articles. As far as uh, getting into translation goes, basically, they, it was kind of a it happened at the same time because as I was studying those articles, I would you know write down the keywords I I didn't know, and then you know basically be you know after reading an article eight or ten times, you basically know it by heart, and uh, that sort of became the de facto way I translated things. You have any advice to I don't know language learners, or just curious if you have any tips for people learning. I mean, Japanese is probably one of the hardest languages. Other than it absolutely is. It absolutely is tough, and you can definitely learn to read on your own using those, uh, using that text I mentioned and that system I mentioned. Just go from like a the graded, find a graded reader, and I'll send you a link to the book I uh, I was mentioning. So you can definitely learn to read through there, and then uh, there's also very easy manga to read like Draimon and uh, stuff like that. Um, that's a good, that's a good way to, uh, um, um, you know, start, start actually being able to read stories and stuff like that. I would advise against, uh, trying to read children's books because children's books are like not as easy as you think. And it's, it was really surprising because they used the, uh, they used old fashioned expressions and stuff like that. No, there's a lot of slang. My my daughter takes Japanese, and some of her books uh-huh. are just so difficult to read because they use all kinds of obscure sounds sometimes. And right, right, yeah, and, yeah. and those are funny for kids of me if you're a native speaker. But if you're trying to look it up, it's like you're like, what is this word? And it's just like I remember it was like the, the Oji-san's like soul sana, and I'm like, what the heck is soul sana? And it's not a word. It's just like a old something an old person would say. So you know, I I, I bought this like you know hardbound momotaro book you know peach boy mm-hmm. and i was trying to go through it and it was just like agony I'm like what does this mean what does this mean like i couldn't figure anything out because uh it was an, it was a really old-timey story so there's all these old-timey words and old-timey expressions which is you know which is fun for like you know kids to hear their parents read to them but it's like it's like agony trying to figure it out if you're like from uh you know from uh uh, the perspective of a foreigner. Plus, it's like all in hiragana, so you can't even figure out where the word one word ends and the other word begins. It's like making you, it was really tough. And then, when did you just start deciding to start publishing these kind of books you thought should be promoted in the West or abroad? Uh, that's a good question. I, I didn't really decide. I had, I, like I said, I had some people ask me. There was a book called Ninjutsu no Gokui, The Essence of Ninjutsu, that was published in 1917 that a lot of people really wanted to read because it's very famous. It's it's kind of the source of a lot of fundamental uh, knowledge knowledge of ninjutsu because it mentions all kinds of things like, uh, you know, 
ninja wearing a you know a mask over their face and dressed all in black and using their sword to like climb over walls and stuff like that. So everyone wanted to, everyone was asking me about to translate this book and I was like, all right, I'll try it out. So this book was really tough to translate because it was in the uh, written in the Showa era, but I, I kept at it and chipping away, chipping away, and eventually I was able to uh, finish it and publish it after like about two and a half years. Uh, fortunately, this book this book is extremely old. You know, it's like you know, it's it's a hundred years old. It's pre-war Japanese, and I wouldn't have been able to translate it if it wasn't for the online. You know, it had it had been digitized and published online. So uh, that's really, and then also at the same time, there was also self-publishing became available because up until now, you, if you wanted to self-publish a book, you had to like go to a publisher, get like 500 copies printed, and then uh, sell them. Yeah, yeah, distribute. You know, go around to bookstores and in the in the cities around your town. You know, like oh, I got to go. To, I got to drive up to Richmond and then down to Norfolk and then up to DC and stuff like that. Whereas print on demand meant no, but I didn't have, there was no upfront money. And also I didn't have to like, you know, go to the post office and mail, you know, write post office labels and stuff like that, which is like agony. Right. So I, uh, how has the business been of self-publishing these books? Like what's been popular? What's been a failure? What are you getting more demands for? I'm just curious on that side. Um, I, uh, Let's see. What's not popular is uh, I started translating this series of Edo manga. So it's manga published in like the 1700s, and uh, they're these stories are hilarious, man. There are there's there's one about tattooing. It's, there's a one story about a bunch of guys that get tattoos, and the tattoos are so realistic that they come to life and start going off and having adventures on their own. So there's like two severed heads. That go running around trying to find job, trying to find part-time jobs, and there's a there's another one where a, a monster goes rampaging around trying to find his adversary. So it's a really funny stories, and uh, they're not selling well. But uh, the, that whole series of stories from the 1700s is fascinating. So I'm I'm continuing to publish them, even though they're not uh, particularly uh, uh, popular. Um, as far as popular stuff, one I translated a book called uh, uh, Okinawa. What's it called? Uh, Okinawan Kempo by a guy named Motobu Choki, who's a famous karate practitioner. And uh, when I decided to translate that book, I I had trans I had previously translated an interesting book on also called Kempo. Kempo is basically like jujitsu. But uh, I had translated a book on Kempo, and I was like, oh, this book was interesting. I wonder if there's any more books on this Kempo Jiu-Jitsu uh, that was currently being uh, used by the police in Japan. This, this, the first book on Kempo was from, like, the 1880s. And uh, I found this book by Motobu, Motobu Choki, which I think was published in the 20s, or maybe it was in the 30s. And I published it, and it got real. it sold really well, and I didn't understand why. And uh, the reason was is because there was a there's an entire organization that that still exists of multibu choki uh, karate schools all over the world. And I was like, oh, this guy's famous. Like I didn't know that guy was famous because all the other books I'd published up to that point had been no one said had ever heard of any of these people. So I sort of accidentally translated a book that was by a person that was quite well known, and the book became very popular. So. 
it's kind of a funny story. I was like, oh, sorry, I didn't realize that there was a whole organization devoted to this guy's teachings. Did they end up contacting you or? Well, I, I, I didn't understand why I was, I was like, why is this book really popular? Cause I didn't really, cause I actually, I actually don't do any promotion or anything really. Uh, I just published the books and then, you know, I would like write on my Facebook page or on Instagram, oh, finish another book. <laughs> that's it. You know, that's like the, that's the extent of my, uh, of my uh, public relation. I mean, in, in the last couple of years, I've done a couple of, uh, interviews but uh for the most part it's just been word of mouth as far as i know and then so that's why was, that's why i was surprised when you told me about the uh the okinawan festival in hawaii there was people with my book i was like wow that's that's quite flattering yeah i'm just curious yeah you i mean a lot of your topics seem esoterica i guess you know niche mm. so i guess you mm. you're going for the long tail um have any publishers contacted you like viz media or anything or I mean, they're oh no, no, no. I tried, you know, <clears throat> early on, I tried to get in contact with some uh, publishers, but uh, didn't really get any answers. So I just continued to uh, publish what I like. And there's a little bit of a chain reaction kind of um, uh, flow with my work. Like, for example, those jujitsu books mentioned some of the kind of esoteric aspects of martial arts, like Kuji, you know, yeah. the nine seals where you kind of fold your hand in different shapes in order to. Uh, sort of uh as a, as a way to kind of like bring peace of mind and and offer a kind of mental self-protection um those were mentioned in the jujitsu books as just an aside so i took that aside and then did more research into it and that's how i got into the esoteric books or so, like, there'd be a word or something or a phrase mentioned in a book about uh traveling in japan and i uh i found a book and I use that to uh, translate a, a travel book about Edoera, Japan, where a guy gives travel, basically travel advice in the year 1800, how to, how to prepare your stuff, how to put your sandals on right, how to keep yourself safe in a hotel room while you're traveling. So uh, there's a, there's a little bit of a chain reaction as to what I'm uh, translating. So I guess that would be my advice to anyone who wants to get into translating. You know, you can take a look at the net. If you're doing Japanese or even any language, really, take a look at your national archive, find a book that you think would be interesting for you, and then translate it and self-publish it because I, I think you'll find an audience at some point. Um, what are some of the most interesting kind of rabbit holes you've gone down? Like, I've never heard of this KG um, issue, or I'm just curious, like, what any interesting discoveries you're like wow this is really weird or interesting or <laughs> what did you find um well the whole you know i i titled that one book tattoos as punishment and i didn't because i thought there was a connection between punishment tattoos and the yakuza and the popularity of tattooing and and that connected to the modern day tattooing and while that was completely wrong i did find all these interesting avenues like i uh i found all sorts of wonderful books about the Ainu, like color illustrations, talking about um, their lifestyle and stuff like that. And uh, I've started working on those books. I've also started working on more um, books about the uh, the mythology of the Ryukyu Islands and also like how their society worked. There's lots of stuff about like uh, w the lives of women in the Ryukyu Islands and stuff like that. And also uh, punishment, crime and punishment. Um, 
I just did a post recently where uh, about crime and punishment regarding uh, punishment for arson. So, you know, Edo was a city made of paper and wood, and so fire was a big problem. So if you committed arson, the punishment was you, they would burn you to death. And this, this manual I found gives it step-by-step instructions on how to set up a fire to burn a person to death, how to tie them up, how to like set up, how to bury the stake in the ground, how deep to bury it and, uh, how to prepare it, how many people you need. And then at the very end, it includes a cost breakdown. <laughs> Like, no, I saw that on your Twitter feed. You had like execution manual cost structures or something. And I thought, yeah, it's fascinating. It's like, man, at the like, this is some like, you know, it's it's not just some like, you know, yeah, just get some brush together and tie them up and light them on fire. It's like, you know, how many people you need to tie them up and where you should tie them up and make sure you cover the rope with with mud and then tie some loose string around that and do this and that. And then at the end, it's just like a, a total cost. A total cost uh, structure, and each of those punishments has that kind of the economics of execution aspect to it. How much it would cost to execute someone, or how much it actually has how much it costs to tattoo someone too. So that's another project I'd like to make into a full book: the uh, the economics of execution and punishment. Um, but uh, what is? Um, I'm sure you have Japanese friends, and what do they think about your interests? Are they kind of like this is just otaku interests, or like <laughs> they don't even read Showa era stuff? They're like no one, yeah, no one reads this stuff. No one reads this stuff. And when I tell them about it, they're just like, "What? <laughs> it's like what? It's like what is this? What is this?" And I'm like, yeah, "Never mind, don't worry about it." Like I don't even even jujitsu. Like you know, they don't really know. Like average Japanese person doesn't really know juj- what jujitsu is. So I do jujitsu in my martial arts, and we also do kenjutsu, you know, sword fighting, but. uh if someone were to ask me, I just tell them it's judo because otherwise it's they just don't know what you're talking about. It's not something many people. It's it'd be kind of like if you did like I don't know medieval fighting reenactment in in America or Europe. People be like, you do what? Yeah, what? I guess they would just think you're weird. Yeah, uh, so you just go like, oh, I do boxing. You're like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, the thing that's interesting to me is that you know if Mishima or someone was alive today, uh-huh. I think you'd be talking to him, right? These are all kind of not right-wing but dissident cultures like sub underground japanese things right that the government interacts with both through law and i mean execution is powerful kind of governmental law right so it's just interesting right. to see that culture and how that even affects contemporary japan all those lineages are still affecting japan right, right. they had there's, there's lots of information there that i think needs to be like you know put together to help understand, you know, contemporary Japan, um, especially like, you know, those, the crime and punishment aspects, because a lot of people discuss like, oh, Japan's very safe. And it was even very safe in the Edo era, but you have to look at like, you know, how they, how they maintain that level of safety. So there were some pretty strict punishments for people that, uh, you know, started a fire. I mean, admittedly, uh, you know, you start, if you started a fire in Edo, it would like, you know, it could kill like an awful lot of people. And some of the fires that erupted in Edo, you know, killed like, tens of thousands of people. So um, they had some strict laws and uh, the way they ran the society was, uh, uh, could be very strict at times, definitely. And it's, it's definitely worth having that information available to, uh, to further your research. I saw um, you were following, I think the Tono Museum. And oh I- God, that museum, man, I want to go there so bad. <laughs> it looks so awesome. Yeah, maybe for people who don't know that, that's, I guess I would call it, 
folk esoterica spells yeah. and yeah it's all it's all folk it's a whole exhibit on folk magic and they have all these wonderful little bits of paper and like dolls and like just like just looking at you like what is this it's some like clay doll wrapped in twine with all kinds of symbols on it you're like holy heck what is this did you uh, what's your yeah because they're introducing sanskrit and how are you working with texts that are just beyond modern comprehension i'm just curious like how do you approach those well like some of those esoteric texts they're just they're at the you can read them they're actually not that hard to read but it's like what is this talking about it doesn't you know it's hard to like well, what is this sent you can read all the words in a sentence but you don't know what they mean kind of like uh if you're a person an english learner trying to read a book by shakespeare you're like what what is this all about like is this a joke <laughs> like what so uh you have to i try to find this like for the esoteric books i try to find the simplest possible book on it and then work back towards the more complex books because i found the complex books they they look amazing but i just don't know what what's going on so for the the kuji book i'm actually working with a guy from hawaii who is uh very knowledgeable about sanskrit characters so he's helped me uh you know directed me to like you know what the meaning of these sanskrit characters were and so then i have to attach that meaning to the how the japanese are interpreting that character at that time because these things can change according to the time and also the the sect of buddhism and stuff like that so, so there's a lot of moving pieces eric how is your translation work then i mean people think it's an individualistic you know you're in your office by yourself but how are you really how is this a team sport I'm curious about that. Well, I try to I try to keep, you know, the the text as is. I don't I don't add any um I try to, I don't add anything like my opinion to the text. Though uh and I try to clearly de delineate what what's opinion like if there's a uh, you know, this is this is this person's opinion or something like in a footnote at the same time, I don't want to overdo the footnote thing. So I do sometimes put the definition of terms inside the translation just to reduce the number of footnotes and increase the readability. For example, like if they just make an offhanded mention to of Oda Nobunaga, you know, you know, I type in Oda Nobunaga, who was a warlord, was killed in the uh the Honoji incident in 1582. You kind of like, you know, so I don't uh but other than that, I, I try to um, you know, respect the meat, what the person was trying to say at the time, especially since um, some of the books are basically research papers. So I really want to be sure that I, uh, in, you know, as close as possible to what the guy's trying to talk about as, you know, as, as humanly possible. As a translator, have you looked at any other, I mean, the opposite direction, English text going into Japanese and I'm curious how you think about that process or, or if you're not, uh, even... I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, I, I think I'm really good at translating English to J or Japanese to English. But I don't know if I'd be able to translate a book from Jap English into Japanese very well. I think it would, uh, uh, I think it would sound really strange, but uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, interested, I'm not interested in doing that. I know, but have you read any texts, you know, like, uh, I'm just curious how you, and as a reader, how you approach um you know translation in english text and wonder one uh, there's definitely books in english that I, I think would be interesting for japanese people to read but i don't 
I don't think I have the capacity to to translate from English into Japanese. Got it. And then, um, Eric, I'm just curious, like, what's next on your? I mean, you're working on the Kiji book, I still, and what other topics are you really kind of excited for right now? I'm uh, I'm really interested in this uh, Maeda Mitsuo story because the guy uh, he talks about he's traveling all over the world, meeting all kinds of interesting people, and having funny interactions. And this this story right now is in 1908, and there's all these funny, interesting people, and uh, you know he's having trouble he's having trouble like you know working out the rules of the matches and stuff like that because there's the Western wrestlers want to have these kind of rules and he wants to have these kind of rules. Um, so there's all kinds of interesting interactions like that, funny people, funny situations. And it's just, it's, uh, stunning to think that all this happened before world war one, not world war two, world war one, you know, this is like, it's 1908. So like, uh, so I'm really interested to see how far this uh, story goes and what else, what happens once he starts heading over to South uh, Central and South America. Also, I, uh, my goal is to, uh, continue publishing those esoteric tes- texts and uh um I'm, I'm sort of working back in time now from the uh ones that were the easiest to the ones that are more uh more uh more difficult and more esoteric and what else is there yeah i definitely like to uh, definitely like to continue with the edo manga series where it's the the funny little stories published in the uh, 1700s that were read by, you know, samurai and townsfolk in Edo era. So I really like those a lot. And then how are you, the final question I have on your translations, do you work with native Japanese speakers on questions or how do you approach like really? I you- don't, I don't really know. Uh, no, no, I basically work on my own. Um, I don't have any, uh, any people that I can, uh, that I regularly ask questions about that are Japanese. I actually have quite a few people that are, you know, uh, quite well versed at Japanese and are also very knowledgeable about a topic. For example, I have a friend named Lance Gatling who's very knowledgeable about judo. He's involved with the Kodokan and he is a, he's a fountain of knowledge about how Kano Jigoro got, you know, judo started and how he uh, spread it through the world. Correct. And he also had his fingers in a lot of pies. He was very involved in the government. So um, he was involved in all kinds of aspects of Japanese policy. So um, he's a source I use for uh, um, judo. And then, like I said, I have a a buddy in um, um, Hawaii named Gabriel Rosa, who's very interested in buddhism and kuji and uh ninjutsu so i consult with him on on items related to uh uh the bungee the sanskrit characters and is he a researcher or is an academic or who is gabriel he's he's a he's a carpenter oh okay wonderful <laughs> he uh he's a uh a carpenter researcher and he does he does some great research he made this guy is amazing he made there's a a, a diagram of a collapsible boat that was in an old ninjutsu manual and he just made it <laughs> like it's like unbelievable wild and then one of my last questions um, yeah. eric since you've been in japan 20 years how has your relationship to japan changed i mean i feel like maybe it's an open-ended question i'm just curious how you now that you're going down this kind of deep world 
what's your relationship to Japan changed, contemporary or old or the West? Just interested in that. Well, like I, I uh, you know, everyone thinks they haven't, you know, they haven't really changed that much. But I hear from other people that uh, I uh, I act a little bit differently from how I used to. Um, I got asked a difficult question one time, and I gave an evasive answer, and the guy just was like, "Man, you sound just like a Japanese person." <laughs> so I was, he was giving me grief because I was giving a kind of a roundabout answer, uh, and he wanted a direct answer. So uh, I, I, def- I definitely still enjoy living in Japan, and I feel like there's a lot of a lot of uh, things I still want to uh, expand my knowledge on. So I'm I'm very content. Despite living a long time here, I'm I'm very content with uh, uh, how things are going. And then, how does your relationship to the U.S. how has that changed? Are you do you visit often, or do you not? Or oh yeah, still- once or twice a year I go actually. So uh, yeah, I quite like it. Uh, it's a, you know it's definitely uh, it's it's definitely uh, you get a little bit of culture shock there, and uh, uh, but I quite enjoy. Um, you know, going to uh, breweries and stuff like that. It's a big, that's such a fun culture and getting like, uh, you know, going to like Mexican restaurants and stuff like that. They they don't really have this here in Japan. Great. And then um, Eric, what's the best way for people to, you know, find your work and follow your output? Uh, Thanks for asking. Uh, Yeah. Just go to amazon.com and uh, type in Eric Shahan books and, uh, you'll see the, the, you know, all kinds of stuff will come up. I think I'm up to like 80 books now, but uh, there's a lot of material there. Um, and uh, keep in mind that uh, I'm self-published. So like literally I do everything with those books from like, you know, writing the description, making the covers, translating, formatting the book. So it's all, it's a, it's a one man, the one man operation. Uh, so, uh, and all mistakes are my own. So if you see something and, uh, you get one of my books and you notice something that seems awry, just let me know and I'll fix it. And, uh, and thank you personally for that. And then last question I have, Eric, your Twitter feed, what are you trying to do with that? Or is that just promotion or you have kind of an interesting feed? Just curious. Yeah, what. It's, it's, Actually, I was just thinking about it the other day because it's like my current it's my current research as well as some current events in Japan that I'm also interested in. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess that's what the what do you think that is? No, I, th- I think it's great. It's like a notebook of just what you're thinking about and what you're working on it, but it's very interesting and for people who are into esoterica and obscure things, it's really fun. so I, mm. I, I appreciate it so. Um, it's kind of like it's literally it is what it's a note it's literally notes in the sense that a lot of times the the topic seems to jump around a lot and that's because the book i'm I'm working on several books at the same time so as i'm jumping around i'm I'm doing footnotes or looking up terms so as i'm looking up those terms those posts are just like what i'm like a footnote i'm writing or some sort of uh you know term i had to look up or something like that so nice and then is there anything else you wanted to share, Eric? Or no, I uh, I appreciate uh appreciate you taking the time to uh, interview me. And uh I definitely encourage uh people all, all over the world to uh give try independent translating or independent publishing a try, especially with translating, because there's a lot of uh uh a lot of countries are 
are, uh, what do you call it, digitizing their collections. You know, even the Vatican has a, their collection up and they have resources from all over the world. So, you know, if you are, uh, you want to, uh, if you find something interesting in one of those digital collections, you know, translate it, especially if you translate it into English and make it available, I think uh, you'll find an audience. Yeah, what's so interesting about translation to me also is that it's the only time that you really, really read, right? Right, you, yes, uh, yes. So, yeah, I mean, that's really like when you have to take the time sentence by sentence, word by word to try to... Mm. So it's an it's interesting reading experience. I think translators are underappreciated often, right? So, And it's a, good way to, it's a good way to get, if you want to improve your language ability, you know, you, you really have to drill in... Um, you know, you know, read the same passage several times to to uh, get um, to get the meaning, and uh, you know, then then you have once you get that sentence, you have to look at the one before and the one after, and how does this all fit into the guys to the writer's you know worldview and stuff like that. Probably my advice though on translating is don't set a goal of like six pages a day or three pages a day or something like that. Just set aside a section of time every day, like you know, I'm going to work for like an hour today or you know. 25 minutes today that's fine don't don't get don't try to do like i'm gonna do 10 pages a day because that'll like uh that that's gonna be really tough that's gonna be really tough <laughs> got it so how, how many hours do you usually work on this process all day it just or? depends on like you know if it's a you know a weekday after work you know i might not really get that much done or uh i might just read the passage or uh, look up a, a couple of terms a lot of times like they the book I'm, work, oh, I'm working on a Miyamoto Musashi manga now, and he keeps uh, referring to these old Chinese like aphorisms, and I'm like, "What? <laughs> like, I had no idea what the heck was he's talking about." He's he's he has to be pa he's patiently waiting to take the revenge. Take revenge. This is a story from the 1800s about Miyamoto Musashi. And he, he's patiently waiting to take revenge, and it's like he's like, "I have to sleep on sticks and lick a gallbladder." I'm like, "What the heck does that mean, man?" And this is like, it, it's a story of a, a Chinese king who was defeated in battle. And, and uh, in order to remain humble, he slept on a, a bed of sticks and, and had like a gallbladder that he would lick or eat every morning, the bitter, with the bitter taste of which would remind him of defeat. So I have to, I have to now tie that into like Miyamoto Musashi, like being patient about uh, seeking revenge. So. Mm. Awesome. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing all this, you know, obscure topics with the world. And um, Eric, I really appreciate your time as well. No, thank you. It was fun.